0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Darrell Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table.
1: Reading
2: as I'm describing it is not to be thought of as a luxury, but I think ultimately should be thought of as a vocational responsibility.
0: Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to The Church Lobby, conversations on faith and ministry. My guest for this episode is Austin Cardi, and we'll be talking about why reading matters for ministry. Austin is the pastor of Boulevard Baptist Church, a small congregation in Anderson, South Carolina. He's also an author, and in this episode, we'll be talking about his book, The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters for Ministry. Austin and I talk about the importance of reading in the life of the pastor, not just reading for information, but what Austin calls reading for formation. We'll cover topics like how long-form reading brings so many positive influences into our lives and ministry, the importance of reading many types of books, not just works of theology and leadership how reading helps us become more mature, more wise, and more caring, and how reading the Bible with a sense of wonder helps to embed its truths into our lives. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Austin, welcome to The Church Lobby. It's good to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Carl. Thanks for inviting me. You are very welcome. I almost, it's strange because this, it's called The Church Lobby, but it could almost be called The Church Reader because easily three quarters of my podcasts are based on books that the uh guests have written because i love to read i love books i love getting the information out of it and i love passing it on to others so i don't know does that make this a a meta podcast today or something
2: (laughs) well it certainly sounds like i'm the right guest for the right show here because uh, my whole book is about yeah why pastors need to read so we're cut out of the same cloth Absolutely
0: absolutely. So it's been a while since a little while since I read your book The Pastor's Bookshelf Why Reading Matters for Ministry. I usually I can remember how I got a hold of certain books but for some reason I can't trace back where I got your book from, but it doesn't matter because I read it and I really really enjoyed it. There's so much in this that I just was hooraying and amending as I went through. Let's just jump right into it because there's so much here to talk about. R- right from the beginning you establish what your premise is and is not. And one of the ways you do that fairly early on is you use you use this phrase, pastors with imagination, it turns out, perform certain practices and disciplines, all of which contributed to forming certain habits of the mind. And one of these practices was reading. So you've done, gone into some research and you've discovered that pastors who read have a greater sense of imagination. Uh, they read because they love to read, not just to gather information. They read to expand their capacity to see, to feel, and to think. So when you talk about reading, you're not just talking about reading to gain more information, right?
2: Yes, that's the first principle argument of the book is that reading, in contrast to what most people generally think, is not primarily an informational act. It's primarily a formational act. But that's somewhat counterintuitive because most of us pick up books and read hoping to learn things and there's nothing wrong with that. It is informational. We do, you know, retain information. We upload it to the hard drives of our brains and then it's there, but far more than that. We lose so much of that. Studies show that other than the handful of genetic lottery winners who have photographic memories, the rest of us only retain give or take 10% of what we read. So, Beyond that, what's happening is we're being formed by what we read. And that's a much more qualitative process. But just because we don't have instant recall of all of those things doesn't mean that with every single thing we read, we're not being further and further textured and enriched by all of those things. So that's argument number one is that it's not just an informational
0: act, far more than that, it's a formational act. I don't talk about how much I read on a regular basis. I just read a lot. But whenever anybody asks, you know, how many books do you read or whatever? And I tell them, most people are surprised because I just consume an awful lot of of books on a regular basis. I just love it. And almost every time when I say that in a group of pastors, particularly, there's almost always at least one person who comes to me with a quick fix for this problem that I've got. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's almost always some new program or app that shows you how to read entire books in just ten-minute summaries, as if somehow they're helping to save my time. And I never can seem to communicate to folks who love that that kind of of help. It's almost impossible to communicate to them. It is about taking the time to do that. I'm not wasting my time. This is important time. So talk with us about that because I know we're already, there are people listening to the podcast who are already in that place. And I'm not here to make fun of that, but I do believe there's a different way to look at it that you line out so importantly. What is it about taking an extreme amount of time to do the reading that that time actually matters? It's not something we want to cut back on.
2: Yeah. Those kind of quick fix hacks, life hacks to be able to read a book in 10 minutes or get the fifty thousand foot level takeaways from each book. I mean, they have their place, but that's not that's not reading. And it's it's really just getting some more information. And T S Eliot has a great line a hundred years ago where he'd said where's all the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Where's all the knowledge we've lost in information? So just having a lot of information is not the same thing as being knowledgeable, nor is being knowledgeable the same thing as being wise. And so part of that process of acquiring wisdom, it's not reducible to one's active reading, but just the continued consistent act of long-form reading does help us learn how to synthesize, analyze, and ultimately be able to appropriate information in a way that we can turn that into knowledge and knowledge into wisdom. But far more beyond all of that, there's also now cognitive neuroscience that shows us that this is not just a, a theory. Uh, we can now actually demonstrate and trace the way that reading wires the brain in certain ways and how the kind of fractious, disjointed way that we're increasingly air quotes reading uh is is wiring our brains in, in different ways. Neuroplasticity is is a thing. Our brains are not static. It's not as if we're born with uh this particular wiring and that's the way that it remains. It's always being rewired. And certain activities that we do uh, can cause us to become more patient. They can cause us to become more thoughtful. They can cause us to become more empathetic. They can cause us to become more loving. And Reading, interestingly enough, has been shown to correspond with uh, nerve and brain centers that uh, light up uh, in reaction to all of those things I just named. Whereas the ways that we're right now taking in information. While it might make us be folks who are prone to to moving faster, it also it makes us more distracted, it makes us more anxious, it makes us more hostile, more quickly enraged or angered. And so those things are not just theoretical, they've they've been demonstrated. So to, to think that reading is just simply getting the highlights out of a book, and therefore you've read the book, is to misunderstand fundamentally what what reading is, because it's not just about getting information. It's about what's happening to the person doing the reading while he or she is taking it in.
0: As you said, we only retain about 10% informationally of what we read. And if that's the only stat you're taking into account, then, well, why wouldn't you go to one of these apps that helps you get the basic information from a book in 10 minutes. Why would I waste five hours reading a book that I'm only going to retain 20 minutes of information on or half an hour of information on? It doesn't seem to make sense because it's more than that. As you, the phrase you do that I love, it's not just informational, it's formational. That one hour of reading deep into a single book is so much different than one hour of scrolling through text-based social media and stuff on my phone. One hour is formative and healthy and the other one is deformative and unhealthy. Is it's that extreme in the difference, isn't it? it? it is that
2: extreme. Again, that's not just your and my as book lovers theory. That's now been right. born out. It's 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 demonstrated. It's demonstrable. And and one of the things about this is you just have to trust that this ultimately is happening to you because it's not something that on an hourly basis or even day to day you can see the you can't see the way that it's building up or way that it's accruing, but it does it it builds up at compound interest. Fred Craddock, the famous preacher, referred to this with reading, in fact, as building the reservoir. And so as we're reading, we're building this reservoir. But again, only 10% of that is in the reservoir in a way that we know it's there. But nonetheless, it's there. And so it colors everything we're doing as as pastors. I mean, this is true, by the way, for folks in any vocation. I've mapped it on specifically to being a pastor uh, because I think it really obtains to what what it means to be a pastor. But this is true regardless. The stuff that we take in as committed wide readers Will begin to show up in all spheres of our lives, but certainly as ministers. And one of the ways that I think about that specifically is pastoral caregiving. And here's one place where fiction is particularly rich, uh, but nonfiction as well. We go visit members, we go to the hospital, we go to their homes, wherever it is and under what circumstances it might be that we're going to visit with them. Very seldom can we know for sure when we've walked away, oh, well, I was uh, enriched as a pastoral caregiver there because I read that book or because I came upon that thing. But there are times that then one can reflect and realize there was some way that we as pastoral caregivers who read understood something deeper about the human condition. Or there was some kind of hidden just recognition of something we saw there that was a tool that had been sharpened for us by our reading. But we could have never known that that was the case. And when you sit down to write a sermon, the thing that I always tell folks that talk to me about this and that are interested in being pastor readers and want to know about how it will impact their ministry and preaching is the thing they tend to ask about first. I say, yes, it will. It absolutely will. But you have to trust it. It can't start with, I've just read this book and I want to shoehorn in this quote that I really like. You can't start that way. The way that this works is you start with the text, the gospel text and you prayerfully consider what it is that the Holy Spirit's wanting to say, you begin to put together the sermon. I'm a manuscript preacher, so this happens on the almost 99% of the time on, on the front end for me, rather than there extemporaneously in the moment. Though that does happen too. But either way, I start with what it is that, that I'm trying to say, that I feel like the Holy Spirit's trying to say from the gospel. But then unbidden will often come some quote or some allusion some passage or scene or something that then happens to be just the right anecdote or just the right quote for what I'm trying to say. It's not being forced in. It's just bubbled up out of the reservoir. And a lot of times that's something that I didn't even know was in there. It's something that wasn't one of those things that if I'd been asked to quote back something that was of that 10%, I thought I'd retained. It was in there. I just didn't know that it was in there. But that reservoir builds up over time and you just have to read by faith, not by sight, trusting that this is something that is happening. But it will go before you as a pastor in your preaching and your pastoral caregiving and your vision casting and your leadership and all of these ways that you can never treat instrumentally like, oh, I'm reading this because I'm then going to be able to use it for that. It doesn't work that way, but it will continue to crop up over and over and over again.
0: If I'm reading, and there are times, like I just wrote a book and there were t- there were a handful of things, okay, I need to read these three resources because I need to understand what they're saying. And I read them in order to be able to get the information, to understand it, to see if I was coordinating properly with the other people in my field of you know interest that I was writing about. But in general, when I'm reading, as you're saying, it's forming us in ways that you don't understand. And I love that you talk about it's not just reading. A lot of pastors who do read, every once in a while, I'll ask them, tell me what you're reading. And they only give me a list of theological or ministry texts. And if I go through my Goodreads right now, maybe a third are that. But the other two thirds are biographies and fiction. And oh, here's an example This actually happened to me. Several years ago, I finished a conference and somebody came up to me and asked me, said, do you read a lot? And I said, yeah. And they said, like, what do you read? And I said, I read everything from biographies to fiction to nonfiction. And they asked, do you read sci-fi? And I said, not much, but I've read some. And they said, what sci-fi have you read? And as soon as I said, Isaac Asimov, he went, I knew it. Now what 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 did you know? And he said this particular principle you taught on that's from Isaac Asimov's foundation series, right? And until he said it I didn't know it. <laughs> that, Carl that, that's that's a great
2: anecdote that's exactly what I'm saying about these things yeah. that are in the reservoir because far more often Will it be that you realize long after the fact, if ever, that something that you've done as a pastor, again, whether it's preaching or whether it's what you offered in a pastoral care session, how that was colored by your reading, far more often you just don't know or realize long after the fact rather than it be something that you know immediately was influenced by that. I use an example in the book of a sermon that I preached long after an anecdote that I'd told about how I'd gone to meet a pastor, and it was, and I brought a Mercia Eliada book. He was like, "Why are you reading that?" And I was telling him, like, "You know, I just, I, all the stuff I read, I just trust it. You know, in in some way, it's 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 meaningful and significant to what I'm up to." And he laughed, and when we were leaving, he's like, "You let me know whenever you know that comes popping up." And what you done? Well, years later, I preached a sermon, and I got an email from a from a member not long after, like a day or two after the sermon. And she's a retired English professor. She wrote to me, talking about how she had heard echoes of Mercia Eliada and what I had had just preached, and actually cited the book that I had been reading that day. And I, I think she was probably right, but there was not that was not intentional. It wasn't conscious on my part that. Anything that I'd read there was going to find its way into that sermon. And that kind of thing has happened to me so many times. And your example of that is spot
0: on, because that's the way these things work when you read a lot. I'm purposely using the Asimov illustration, because one, not only is Asimov not about ministry, it's not even nonfiction. Asimov was an atheist. We're not even talking about people reading people of faith. And obviously, neither one of us is putting any of this on anything close to the level of scripture. You've already mentioned that. We'll talk about that a little bit more about how scripture elevates this even to an entirely different level. But when you do read from a variety of viewpoints, and we'll get into this in the bonus information, one of your your big points about how to become a pastor reader is the way you approach reading other viewpoints with a, a great deal of respect and humility. That if I read someone like Anasic Asimov, who's a, a great and brilliant writer, but also a man who absolutely refused to believe in the existence of God, but if I read it with some sympathy, I can then walk away, first of all, having had a great experience with a wonderful story. Secondly, with something that just lodges in there where I have a little more sympathy, a little more understanding, a little more patience. The next time I happen to run into someone who comes from a similar philosophical background to Isaac Asimov and is an atheist, and I don't just jump to it with the latest three points that I read off of the latest anger blog, but in fact, we can have a conversation where they feel heard because they are being heard, and all of the stuff that I've been taking in through reading gives me a better sense of being able to do that with people. How is it that reading deeply by myself helps me make better human connections.
2: There's so many ways, and, and you just touched on one of the principal ones, which is that when we read charitably from perspectives that are different than ours, it heightens our capacity to be able to then minister to and engage folks who are coming at life and reality from wildly different perspectives, and we're able to do that not anxiously I think that one of the real opportunities that we have as ministers right now in a really just polarized, fractious climate, uh, like you talked about the anger blogs, we all know that the algorithms and the, the the financial incentives on social media are you know driven to try to produce the kind of emotions that elicit the highest dopamine secretions, and yeah. unfortunately, those things are you know rage and and anger and. And none of us are above any of that stuff. I mean, we, we we can get involved in all those things cyclically. And and so as pastors, this is the mission field that we're moving around, around in now. And Christians are certainly not above it. In many cases, we're the worst purveyors of it, I'm sorry to say. And so we as pastors have this opportunity to be able to speak on things that are very charged for some folks. And be able to understand complexity and, and offer nuance. And that certainly doesn't mean that we're people without convictions or without perspectives. We are that, but we 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 are able to then speak much more charitably and generously about all manner of things under the sun. And there's nothing controversial in the world that is not also complex. If it were simple and clear, then it wouldn't it wouldn't be controversial. And and to, to pretend otherwise is to court not being a serious person, in my opinion, and so it's it's important to be generous with other perspectives because that way we're able uh, to talk to and help people think through, and then present our perspective and and present the gospel in a much layered and rich and kind of focused and precise way.
0: There's nothing controversial that is not also complex. I love the way you phrase that. I want to get into a moment of into some of the ways that people we can help people. Become readers who aren't readers, who maybe at this point be feeling, they might be feeling frustrated or even guilty over the fact that they don't read a lot. But before I do that, you quote Tim Keller at one point, and he he lays out something that, that I've heard in similar ways, but I think the way he phrases it is really well, and why, it's why you used it. What he says is when you read one thinker, you become a clone, two thinkers, you become confused. 10 thinkers you begin to develop your own voice and two or 300 thinkers and you become wise and develop your own voice which i've heard before in similar ways but then i don't know if it's either he or you that adds to it this reading only one kind of thing is in fact stultifying and it can be as bad as not reading at all because you become such a clone and I think a big part of what we're seeing in anger blogs and in conversation and in the polarization of our culture is that you've got people on one end only reading one kind of thing, people on the other side only reading that other kind of thing, and they don't have the capacity for deep thought because they're not even allowing for complex ideas to come into their heads and into their hearts. So what is it about the multiplicity of sources that helps us to have a greater a greater ability to contextualize the controversial things
2: well tim keller may he rest in peace was a paragon huh. of this you know in the book i cite eugene peterson as the pastor reader par excellence but tim keller's right up there too because he not only talks about it he models it throughout all the rich literature that he's left us it's so sad the way that we are increasingly driven into to camps even with what we read as as adult leaders and and church leaders. And it's it's almost as if for those of us who've fallen into the the kind of rut you're talking about, Carl, then it's it's reading to win versus reading to better understand. And those are two totally different things. And if we've already started out with we've got it all figured out now we're just trying to buttress our own arguments. That's not a charitability of spirit. There's no, there's no generosity of spirit in that. It doesn't mean that we're constantly like, oh, am I right? Am I wrong? We, obviously, we think our opinion's right. It wouldn't be our opinion otherwise. But to try to understand constantly why other people are so equally committed to their perspective on whatever the, the matter is at hand is the way to to really treat the humanity of other people. So I think that right now, like Keller said, to read a whole lot of different thinkers and over time to continue to and this happens under the hood too it's not as if you're constantly all the time holding up these different books and these different voices to one another and analyzing and synthesizing and critiquing it just it just happens but over time it does help us to develop our own voice that goes back to what i was saying earlier about that is a way of of developing wisdom which is not synonymous with knowledge which is not synonymous with information And it enables us to be these pastoral caregivers who, like a Tim Keller, like a Eugene Peterson, like so many uh, pastors we could cite, were generous and gentle and uh, not quickly provoked people. And I really think that is what the mass of folks are hungering for right now. Even if they don't know it, uh, it might seem more appealing to have somebody who's standing up and, and poking and prodding and provoking in the ways you want to hear. But as exciting as that is, something stands out about the people that are just more staid, more calm, have a level of presence, because it suggests a kind of wisdom that's been won through hard experience. Craig Barnes, the, the former president of Princeton Seminary, has several great books. He refers to this as gravitas. The aspect of the soul that has weight, that has gravity that you just sense on someone. And in and, and one of Eugene Peterson's books, he references a line from Melville's Mo, Moby Dick, where he talks about the importance of the harpooner on a whaling ship. While everybody else is running about frenzied, going about everything, he's really calm and has to can't be excitable and must be precise and is calm. And it says he, what it ensures the efficiency of the dart, he must rise from restfulness he says and he that that's what pastors ought to be able to do and i completely concur and that's another way of just getting at what i'm saying here which is and reading is that th- is, is one of the things that really helps us to be that kind of a harpooner that when the rest of the world is running around on the deck frenzied and trying to figure out how to topple the whale the harpooner is the one sitting there quietly calmly poised waiting for just the right moment uh, but we can't just tell ourselves we want to be like that. We have to do things that actively develop that capacity within ourselves.
0: Uh, and reading is one of those things. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh.
0: I'm trying to put my mind and myself into the mind of a listener who maybe hasn't been a big reader and is now hearing you say, and hearing me say, agree with you that we need to read from a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds, even those who come from backgrounds different from us. What about the person who's sitting there going, well, that sounds like a way to end up being compromised. And why would I, why would I want to listen to voices that I don't agree with? Are you just asking me to compromise my value system? Shouldn't I just reinforce my value system by only reading the people who come from my viewpoint? How do you respond to people who have that kind of fear?
2: Well, I think first by saying it, it only helps us understand our own perspective better when we read the best arguments of another perspective. It's it's not a matter of of reading constantly, expecting to be persuaded otherwise. It's a way of charitably and generously trying to understand where someone else is coming from, which only further sharpens where it is that we're coming from. And I think in terms of folks that, you know, are just listening to us talk about reading in general, there are lots of folks that that just don't read a lot as ministers. There's good reason for that. We're busy folks. That's why I think one of the important things is if this argument about reading being more formational than it even is informational, if that is even remotely compelling, the next question is always, well, that's great, but when am I going to do this? You know, how? I don't have that luxury. And that's the second part of of my book. And the thing that, you know, I try to make sure pastors understand is that, yes, if we are thinking about reading as being a luxury on par with playing 18 holes of golf a day or having a daily massage, then no, that doesn't make any sense. But reading as I'm describing it is not to be thought of as a luxury, but I think ultimately should be thought of as a vocational responsibility, because if any of what we're saying is true, then it's a way of sharpening our approach to being ministers just in general. And so that's the second thing that I say to folks is please try to stop thinking of reading as being a luxury and think of it as being, if not even a vocational responsibility, If that sounds too strongly put, which I don't think it is too strongly put, but if that seems too strongly put just a vocational enhancement, the question then is, well, I haven't been doing this. Where am I going to find the time and how do I develop this, this habit? And, that's where I say, start small, start with 30 minutes a day, but put it in the calendar, carve out the time. Eugene Peterson used to carve out time in his calendar saying the calendar is the most authoritative text in in late modernity. That, you know, that if anybody says it's on the calendar, yeah. well, you're talking about holy writ right there, you know, so carve it out, carve out the time. I recommend an hour, but 30 minutes, if you hadn't been reading, that can feel like a whole lot. And that's perfectly fine. And um, it doesn't matter what what you're reading. You know, when you start out just doing it, just getting the muscle going, it's like getting back into the gym or beginning to exercise again. And it is about cultivating a habit. But here's where I want to also encourage one, not to think of it as a habit. Think of it as a spiritual discipline, because it is something that if we discipline ourselves to do, we'll we'll bear uh, spiritual fruit in the fullness of of the season. To, to tie all this together, I recommend folks try it, try to do a little bit of the reading and as this begins to to take hold, yes, venture perhaps into reading something that's not somebody who's just directly aligned with with us and in, in the way that we see whatever the manner of thing we're talking about is. But read it not so as to say, well, is this person gonna gonna convince me otherwise? But read it just to say, what what is somebody else saying? And how can I be uh, a little bit more generous in recognizing that nobody would hold this position if there weren't? Uh, a counter argument that at least is compelling to a lot of people? Why is it that folks are seeing it this way? And how will that enrich my ability to be able to speak You know, from, from the other standpoint?
0: We lose by understanding and comparing the strongest arguments on one side to the strongest argument on the other side. What we tend to do in anger blogs is we, we try to present our strongest argument and their weakest argument. And that's just intellectually soft at least and dishonest at most i think
2: yeah and let me add this too because i think here's an important important aspect of this when we read more on it it almost necessarily takes the anger out for like it, the anger really tends to spring from an insecurity we have about our own position and being able to kind of defend it amid the the vicissitudes of argumentation that once we've read more, once we understand something more, then we're calmer in the way that we tend to respond uh, and react. That's not, that, that's not a hard and fast inevitability, but I find more often than not, the things that I feel that I have a better hold on are the things that I feel less anxious about and and much more calm in being able to register my own disagreement over against
0: if you're going around going, I don't know how anybody could possibly believe in, and then you name something that half of the country believes in, well, if you don't possibly know how they could, then find out how they could. <laughs> don't just push back, get that information. And no, it's not going to just simply you know, convert you to the other side. If your argument is strong, it will probably even give you ways to strengthen your own argument, but at least be able to sit down with people on the other side and have a conversation that can move something forward. Because if we're only in completely dug in on our sides and we yell, I mean, it's the joke, right? Hey, I just read something on the internet and it completely changed my mind. We know this doesn't happen, but we can sit down and have deeper conversations if we're willing to read with some grace and humility. Yeah. We've touched on two or three, but to remind everybody, we are going to do bonus material for this And the bonus material is going to cover your five takeaways on how to become a pastor reader. So if you're not one right now and you want to get better at this, the bonus material will help. You can get the bonus material really simply. All you have to do is you can become a, a financial partner by going to carlvaders.com slash donate. Or for free, you can subscribe to our free newsletter at carlvaders.com slash subscribe. Then every single week on Friday when you get the free newsletter, you will also get the code to go to all of the bonus material for all of the podcasts and get that. And for this one, again, it's going to be five takeaways from Austin about how to become a pastor reader. But before we get to the lightning round, I do want to close with something that is essential and important for us, especially as ministers, with how to approach scripture reading this is absolutely the essential. Obviously, the, the, the one thing that I think everybody's going to agree on on this one is we've got to be better at reading scripture. You actually referenced it a little bit earlier that you never start a sermon or a quote or an image or an allusion from literature. You start with the gospel point you intend to convey, and then because you're widely read and not narrowly read, these other ways of expressing it just kind of seep into your study and end up coming out in ways that bring a depth and a richness to it. One of the quotes you use is this, I read the Bible not only for instruction and devotional purposes, but also for the purposes of embeddedness and wonder. Let's talk about the, the importance of reading for embeddedness and wonder. I love both of those words. So talk us through both of them.
2: Yeah, it's vital that folks understand that nothing in what I'm saying in this book suggests that wide reading or reading anything other than the scriptures is on even remotely the same plane as reading the scriptures. The scriptures are preeminent and they are the inspired source. Uh, This rest is all supplementary and things that just buttress what we're doing. And I think that what you just named is really important because we know as pastors that when we're reading the scripture, that we're further understanding our our, our, our doctrinal positions and that we're having devotional buildup and and then all of those things that that we regularly do and know as pastors but two of the aspects that i think that we can lose sight of as we go about reading scripture are those two things embeddedness and reading for for wonder there's a, a story that the playwright arthur miller apparently as he was coming of age as a playwright would sit at his typewriter with the collected works of Shakespeare in front of him and just start pounding out line by line Shakespeare, but saying it out loud and doing it over and over and over again. Because the idea was he was trying to get that so embedded in him that the cadences and the meter... And the language and things like that, within when he started writing his own material, it would be there in a way he didn't know that it was there because it was just embedded in that way. And I think that's a really good image for getting at what I'm saying here, which is that the more we're reading scripture, the more we're not only quoting it knowingly, it's there underneath things that we're saying unknowingly. i, I give an example, and I wish I had the book in front of me. It's been you know a couple of years since I wrote it. but I, I give as an example a passage in, in one of the N.T. Wright books, where something that N.T. Wright writes, it reads as if he didn't even realize at the time that he was quoting scripture about, about the importance of eating scripture and imbibing it. I, I need the quote in front of me, but it was a really good example of somebody whose life is clearly so deeply has been so deeply embedded in scripture or dripped in scripture that it's embedded in a way that it becomes the lingua franca out of which he himself is writing. And that I am am, am trying to persuade pastors is what happens when we just read the scripture over and over and over again, is that the imagery and the language and the cadences and things like that, they crop up without our even knowing it. But that can't happen if we're not reading it a lot.
0: I found it. I read it on Kindle, which makes it easily searchable. So I've found it here for you. N.T. Wright making a similar case in Paul, a biography claims, Paul has something else of which fewer people, even in his own world, could boast. He gives every impression of having swallowed the Bible whole. He moves with polished ease, he being Paul, moves with polished ease between Genesis and the Psalms, between Deuteronomy and Isaiah. He knows how the story works, its heights and depths, its twists and turns. He can make complex allusions with the flick of a pen and produce puns and other word plays across the languages. So Paul had scripture so embedded in him that it just automatically came out in everything that he wrote in ways that were so deep and so rich. I th- I believe that was the quote you were referring to. So.
2: That's the one. And then there yeah. is a quote in Jeremiah and one other elsewhere about eating the scripture that it's my take as the reader of that anti Wright book that after the fact, he probably looked back and was like, oh, that was because of scriptural. But that imagery of what it, however you read it, where anti Wright's line, I think, was one that just kind of came out the way he gave the description of Paul having. Eaten books whole, or however he put it. I think that was something that probably was in there and came out unconsciously that it was part of this embeddedness that I'm talking about. Thank you for grabbing that. That's exactly what I was yeah. talking about. Yeah.
0: Which, by the way, I need to mention this because people talk about is there a difference between reading print and ebooks? And yes, there is a difference between reading print and ebooks. But you do mention that reading whole books through ebooks brings. An equal value to reading it in print. Some people have a preference for one or the other. Most people who are readers have a preference for print, as I do as well. Uh, but there are some advantages to e reading as well, and you're not getting a lesser experience if you're embedding yourself fully into the text through e reading, right?
2: No, the, the the studies show that whether it's an e book or a hard book, hard copy, everything that I'm saying is is, is equally pertinent to both. Now, audio books yeah. are still powerful and important, but you don't get. You don't maximize the the experiences that we're talking about quite as much because with uh, an audiobook, you're not stopping and rereading sentences and other yeah. things about the way that that you're taking that in that are slightly different. I still highly encourage audiobooks. They can't replace the traditional act of reading so as to to fully maximize what yeah. what reading can do for us.
0: Agreed. Yeah. I do the audio books when I'm out walking, working out, or when I'm driving long distances, because of course I can't physically read during those periods of time, but there is a difference in what I take in and how it impacts me. And even remembering if I read the book doesn't quite hit me the same way if it's audio. So audio is great. Audio is helpful. The Bible talks about hearing the word and the importance of hearing it audibly as well. So there's value there, but yeah, print or ebook, depending on what, and I, I vary it up for all kinds of reasons from portability as I travel to in the middle of the night when I'm I'm awake and my wife isn't and grabbing an ebook or I don't have to flip the pages and turn on a separate reading light for it is helpful to all kinds of reasons for that. Anyway, so much we could get into, but I want to get to the lightning round and then we're going to record that separate bonus material that will remind the folks again before we're done one more time of how to get it if they want it. So lightning round, first question is this. What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it?
2: That's a great question, and there are a lot of ways that I could go with that, but I'll, I'll put my finger on one that has troubled me the most, which is, and this really picked up at COVID, but it was happening before, and, you know, it's important folks know my situation, my context. I'm a, I'm just a, a regular kind of local church minister, very modest-sized church, You know, I'm I'm a pastor in a church where, you know, I know all my people well and and you know, I'm able to know their families and go to the hospital and all that stuff. This principally has been with folks I'd say 45 and younger, but what really alarms me is it's actually across the board. I noticed that folks were less apt to, if there was a need for prayer, call the church and let us know. Like if somebody was sick, or if, if if somebody had been hospitalized, or that forever has been just an immediate instinctive response. And with generations of folks my age and down, I'm 42 now, it seems that while folks think it's wonderful if you're going to pray for them, it's less an immediate thought, oh, I'm going to call the pastor, I'm going to call the church so that they'll be praying. And that suggests for me that we've turned further corner in terms of understanding prayer is just fully instrumental in value. Like, well, yeah, maybe nice for us if the pastor pray, but what's the pastor really going to be able to do? We won't bother him with with that. And so I've had to several different times, you know, just say to our, our church family, please, if there's anything happening. Let us know. Call the church office. Let us know. We want to be able to pray. We want to be able to be responsive and there. Uh, and it doesn't have to be some. I mean, if somebody's in a big accident or there's something really awful going on, yes, they still call. But it's 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 those other things that I've noticed people are less apt to just in a, in an immediate response kind of way reach out and let the church know. And that signals to me a further incursion of a, of a modern idea that what's prayer really going to do? It's going to do a
0: lot. And maybe even part of the whole less frequent attendance too, where people don't see their relationship with the body of Christ as an essential component to their faith as, as it used to be seen anymore. So yeah, I've seen that as well. That's an interesting take. Yeah. Second question, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? Well, let me cheat, Carl. Alrighty. Everybody everybody does on this one. <laughs> yeah,
2: let me let me because I don't know what I don't know what I'd say for free. And I'm sure I could come up with something, but I, I wanna I wanna point folks to something that I think is a really well worth it. And that is the Ministry in a Secular Age series by Andy Root. Andrew Root. He's at Luther Seminary. Uh I don't know if you've had him on or if y'all talked about his books at all, but for me, for folks particularly that are in local church, smaller church ministry, what Andy Root's doing in the Ministry in a Secular Age series is really, really not just vital, but deeply encouraging too. It's really helpful for folks that feel the pressures of larger church culture that weigh down on smaller churches and folks feel like, oh, we need to do all these other things to be more relevant and get people coming out. And his gives a really robust theological argument for why stay in the course and just doing the simple daily important work of ministry uh, is really vital. They're not cheap. I think each of the books are like $25, $27. So that's not free, but for, for my money, that's as, as a good a resource right now for small church pastors as there is on the market.
0: Put links to that in the show notes, and I'll check those out myself as well. All right. Third one, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Well, I don't know the origin of
2: this quote. Somebody told me it was John Maxwell, and that would make sense. But um, it was a a seasoned minister that honestly I wasn't even I didn't have like a deep relationship with. It was somebody at one of my early church stops that it was another local pastor. He was a seasoned minister, and we were having lunch together. And by and by the way that we were talking, and my kind of saying that it, for me relationships were everything. And he had said, he said, Yep. Yeah, he says like the old saying, right? People don't care how much, you know, till they know how much you care. And I'd never heard it before. That to me is worth its weight in gold because it's, it's absolutely true. You know, we can get up and we can have the most sophisticated sermons in the world. We can do all the great prep. I mean, readers like you and I, Carl, I mean, we can, we can have a study where we're also incorporating all these other things and naming these obscure writers and and all the above but if people don't sense that we care as pastors, they're shut off. That's related to what we were saying about if we want to enter into conversations with people who have a different opinion than us on things, too. Nobody's ever been persuaded by somebody who's angrily shouting at them. It doesn't matter how good the argument is. If the messenger is not one that's uh, softening up the one hearing, then it doesn't matter how good the argument is. So that's the best I've ever been given was uh, if it was John Maxwell or whoever, that, that that saying's worth its weight in gold.
0: Yeah, it's about as good as it gets. And Maxwell may have said it, but that was around long before Maxwell started writing. So yeah, that's great stuff. Number four, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church?
2: Oh, gracious. I've been doing this a minute. So I've seen some weird, some weird <laughs> things. and I'm sure <laughs> some funny things too. And uh, Oh my gracious. Well, I had a moment recently where I just got tickled and I don't know why this is the one that's coming to me, but I'd been asked to serve communion in a service that was one of those services where lots of different pastors and lots of just a big, I I don't want to be too specific on, but I was asked, I wasn't actually serving the elements. I was then supposed to do something that was going to be flanking where they were, but it, it ultimately didn't get explained what my role or the person kind of symmetrically on the other side of the sanctuary from me was. So folks come and they take their their communion and then they get done, but they then have to walk past me. And then on the other side, the the, the other pastor, and we look like we're kind of bouncers for communion moment that nobody can figure out why we're just kind of pointlessly standing there. And and I'm over there just kind of giggling to myself, like, man, I look like an idiot. Like everybody's wondering, I got to be wondering, like, who is this pastor? Why did he walk up here? And like, why is he standing here like this? And sure enough, one of the people that I do know comes through and comes and kind of gives me a hug and wishes to me like, what are you doing right now? You know, and I just I don't know why, Carl. Like, it's like, you know, sometimes <laughs> when suddenly you become a 13 year old again, you you just. You you can't help it. I and so I just got tickled, and I'm up there in front of everybody, and I've got tears running down my face because he the, the, the middle of communion spoke, in the middle of communion, and, and because the person spoke exactly how I assumed yeah. I looked. It's like what what are you doing up here? So that's the first thing that comes to mind, and then recently this now comes to mind too. But we had a had a member who, and this is classic like Barney Fife right here, a, a member who had quite clearly fallen asleep, you know, in one of the front rows, was snoring, you know, fairly, fairly loudly, and which is completely fine. That's that's totally fine. But then when coming through at the receiving line told me how wonderful my sermon was, you know, <laughs> couldn't help but get laughed and talk to my wife about it afterwards, because it had been so clear to everybody uh, that he had not heard the sermon, but didn't stop him from kindly telling me what a great job I'd done that morning. So that, those are the two things that come to mind.
0: Yeah, that's one of those times where you got to respond. Did you love the part where I talked about the alligators? Oh yeah, I didn't talk about alligators at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Thank you for this. We are going to go uh, very immediately into the bonus content. We're going to talk some practical five takeaways, five practical steps. If you are not a reader as a pastor, how to become a pastor reader. So we're going to get there. But in the meantime, uh, how can people find you online if they want to reach out and get any more from you?
2: That's actually a hard a hard thing to answer. I am I'm technically on Twitter. But I don't really ever check it. Part mm-hmm. of my understanding is my role is I'm I'm increasingly unimpressed with social media. I really do see myself as just kind of a local small church minister. And so email me, acardi at boulevardbaptist.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me. I mean, the book's available, you know, you can go to Amazon or wherever online to find it. I do have Facebook too, but Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I'll go weeks at a time without even going to look at. I don't have a website. I'm right there in the trenches with everybody else doing this. There's nothing significant about my ministry. I was really, really fortunate that I got to write this book. I don't have any big platform. If any of this was, if any of it was resonant, I'd love to hear from you. But the best way is just send me an email and I'd love to chat with you.
0: Or reach out to me and I can get you in touch with him too, because I got his email as well. That's how I got a hold of you. So, Mm So, and again, the, the book is The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters in Ministry. I really encourage you to get it. And stick around for the bonus content. Again, if you want to get the bonus content, Carlvaders.com slash support. If you want to become a supporter and you get all of the free, all of that content or for free the weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday by going to carlvaders.com slash subscribe. Either way, you'll get the code for all the bonus content for this and all of our other podcasts. But thanks again, Austin, for being with us. Love your information. Love your heart about this. And I really hope that we're able to increase uh, not just the amount of reading, but the value of reading that pastors get because of this. I appreciate it. Thanks.
2: Oh, what a joy, Carl. Thanks so much.
0: As you can tell, this subject is near to my heart. I love books. I love what reading does for me and for those to whom I minister. My key takeaways from this conversation include how deeply reading enlarges not just our knowledge of subjects but our capacity to grow and minister, especially when we're reading at a deep level. I love also how we saw that it's important to read the best of other subjects we're not reading to win arguments. We're reading to enhance our understanding and to give us pathways to ministry. And I love that Austin emphasizes how important it is to take reading seriously. It's not a luxury. It's not something that I squeeze in or around ministry. It's not an exception to my ministry. It's an essential aspect of growing in life, in faith, and in ministry. Plus, I want to take a moment to talk about a point that wasn't in the interview, but that I've been pondering ever since. God thinks reading is so important that when he decided to give us a way to understand him better and to grasp our relationship with him more deeply, how did he give it to us? He gave it to us in the form of writing in the Bible so that we can pick it up and we could read it. That gives you just some understanding of the importance that reading is in our relationship with God. So, if you want to get more from Austin than what's in this particular podcast, you can also support us at carlvaders.com support or get the free weekly newsletter at carlvaders.com subscribe. All supporters, all subscribers will get the private code to gain access to all of our bonus material, including the bonus content that I recorded with Austin about how to become a pastor reader. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.